As you can see, I have many bits of paper tonight. There's so much I want to share with you, but I will. I, I won't share it all, but I'm hoping that I'll have the bits that I want to share when the time comes. So wish me luck. <laughs> um. going to read our retreat description again. In a world where so much is changing so fast, where can we find a place for our hearts to rest? From one perspective, mindfulness and insight meditation can be seen as rational techniques with benefits confirmed by science. From another perspective, our practice can inspire in us a sense of the sacred and devotion to something larger than ourselves. How do we hold these seemingly different um, intentions and worldviews? Join us. <laughs> we are the us. Um, we are here exploring, relating to a sense of the sacred, what a, what a sense of the sacred might look like in a modern context discovering timeless refuge and uh, meaningfulness in the modern world through Dharma practice. So I want to look a little bit into this theme, a little bit more into this theme tonight, and start by looking at this word modern and the modern era and what inheritances we may be um, both beneficiaries of and also um, limited by as we come to practice if this desire for deepening, for awakening and this sense of the sacred is something that we wish to go further with in a way that is consonant with and not ignoring or dismissing and honoring the gifts of the rational and critical faculties that were hard won, in a sense, and yet shape worldviews that may be time for us to go, f go further with, go beyond. So I liked something I read. Um, apparently, Immanuel Kant, the philosopher, uh, in the time of the, in the commenting on the European Enlightenment, which is considered kind of around the beginnings of the modern era, to describe as what he was seeing emerging as this sort of modern view. And uh, somebody said, how would you describe it? And he would say, the modern view, and then you can, before I tell you what he said, see where this doesn't just have to be in time, it can be in us, uh, coming and going, right? He said, the modern view is that if somebody walked into a room and saw you on your knees praying, you'd be embarrassed. If somebody walked into a room and saw you on your knees praying, you'd be embarrassed. I liked that. It, I recognized that. I recognized that hard-won <laughs> rationality in myself from my upbringing, not that it wasn't rational, but there was whatever worldviews I had inherited through the traditional cultures of my family and religious practices. 
the need to be able to kind of move out from that, to be able to see for myself, to be able to critically analyze and look for myself, question for myself. And then finding myself some years later having followed what was really my heart's desire was a school teacher, primary school teacher in London. And that was like, okay, that's, that's going to be my service. That's going to be my devotion. That's going to be my, my service. I did no longer have a religious view around that. But this will be the meaningful offering of myself into the world. And it was great. I, I loved doing it. But it wasn't, something wasn't satisfied still. And I found myself then some time later traveling um, in India, hearing a Tibetan teacher. Um, but such was my modern mind that I couldn't actually go into the tent. It was all in a tent, big, big tent with loudspeakers. Such was my, was my mind. I couldn't go into the tent where he was doing it because that was way too way too religious for my tastes. People were bowing to him and it was too much for me. Um, but I was listening from the outside because you could hear the speakers um, in the place where I was, uh, in the garden. And I could hear him being translated and he said something. And the translator said, so there is love. And I was nodding, yeah, good, there is love. And there is something that looks like love that is not love. And I was thinking, oh, that's going to be interesting. And then he said, and that is attachment and clinging. Know this. And in my head, I thought, yeah, I know that. I know that. I'm already, however old I was, 24, I know that. And then because I was a little bit on my own, and didn't just have, yeah, I know that, we know that, don't we? We know that. I sensed and sensed my body and my heart and great from the depths of my whole body was like, no, you don't. Not, you don't really know that. You don't know it in such a way that it makes a difference. And that was the kind of a pivotal moment for me of actually realizing the knowing that I had wasn't deep enough, wasn't wasn't giving me, taking me where I wanted or what I intuited I wanted to somehow use this devotion that was coming out through as many of us here probably serve in the ways that we serve in the world as best we can. So given that he Kant said this, what happens then as we gain our rationality uh, and you know, you may not completely relate to all the pieces. Just take and and see what's relevant for you here, right? Make it yours, of course. But where does that devotion go? That devotion that would be that one on their knees praying. Where does that spiritual imagination go? When I'm given a framework of rationality, where does my intuition and the sense of more than me? that I can't fully and finally define as the world or community or even finally define as the earth. What happens to that reverence, what happens to that reverence that the, the one bowing might know? I mean, sure, it might be a show, but that's not all it is for many who kneel. What happens to that faith?
what happens to the sense of eternality, what happens to the sense of praise, of appropriate humility, what happens to our love for the beyonds, the beyonds that have no final definition that my mind can wrap itself around. What happens to the possibility to be rooted not only in service and devotion to that which I see in time, in past, present and future, but to something that might be timeless, not bound. The other night I spoke about one analysis of this mm, crisis of our times, of the crises, the ecological crises, of which all the crises that we see around justice and um, equality are completely woven together. I described it as one, by one commentator as a crisis of disembodiment. Another such analysis is as a crisis of misplaced desire. A crisis of misplaced desire. What happens to that desire for more? What happens to that desire to go beyond? We see, we can see it, and we're all kind of in it to some degree. It's no, no righteous ones really here in this crisis. Maybe there are, but... Right, this, the rampant consumerism, the desire to satisfy that desire for more in the world of things, in the world of more experiences, more places to go to tick off my list, all the experiences I want to have before I die. This holiday, that place, these things. One commentator says that our desire for more and our imagination have been seized by the marketplace and drained of their depth. This is not anti... I'm really hoping this isn't anti the world of things. We have benefited greatly, probably everyone here, from all the advances, all the things we can now have all of the advances that have come from this modern view of medicine, of science, of the gifts that, I don't know, probably a good number of us wouldn't be alive in this room if it wasn't for some of those advances. This is not about criticizing that. It is about seeing where there may be an attachment to a view that may be limiting our soul and our participation in what is sacred. The Buddha, as soon as I say the word now, I can, because of the training of that chant, I can, the Buddha, absolutely, we kind of, <laughs> so a thing with those kind of oral trainings, <laughs> they slip right off, which is great, you know, there's, there's worse places your mind can go, right? Mm -hmm. 
really. That's why some of those kind of trainings in the conceptual frameworks and those uh, prayers, they're so, um, they're so helpful, actually. Not just, as I said the other night, for that, you know, when times are tough or in the depth of my meditation, but just waking up in the morning, you know, which tracks shall I send my mind down now? You know, it's going to go down some tracks. It's like, oh yeah, the Buddha. Anyway, the Buddha. Um, and as I ended the talk the other night, the Buddha, and exactly what I mean by that word, you do not know, and exactly what you mean by that word, I do not know. That's between you and the great mystery. And may it lead onward for your devotional and desirous heart to be fanned, it, your spark to be fanned and inflamed. So now the historical Buddha was brilliant and you probably many of you know that and you can probably see it from the very fine discrimination in his teaching. It's a kind of mind that um, has particular gifts. Right? It can really, really discriminate and help us uh, look in very particular ways that as we have been exploring unbind the sense of self and other and world. I would like to suggest um, that if he came here tonight and uh, saw us, <coughs> I think he would be interested in many things and probably, probably um, have a few things to say. Uh, that would be good, I would m move off. <laughs> and uh, yeah, really interested. But one of the things I would imagine he would see um, is, so let me pause that sentence and then tell you. Uh, one of the things that you notice about Buddha Dharma in all the countries that it's gone to, from North India, so he was from North India, um, it looks really, really different in every country that has gone to. It looks very different in India than it looks in Tibet. Look very different in Japan, in Burma, in Sri Lanka. Um, when the Buddha Dharma, this framework that points to universals for us, when it, when it takes root in new soil and culture, it seems to um, keep its integrity. It's a very robust kind of structure in a way, form, um, framework, it seems to um, not mix but root in, like bring its big taproot right into the soil of the sensibilities of the cultures that it comes to. The gifts of those cultures, the sensitivities of those cultures that it comes to, it can respond to the sufferings of the cultures that it comes to and have something to say about the, the blind spots of the cultures that it comes to. And the Buddha, at, in his time, part of his gift was that he was pointing to what he saw as a blind spot in his very own culture, in the worldview and the spiritual view of the culture that he was born into. And w one of the ways it can be described is that the Buddha, at that point in history, in his, uh, his teaching, made what is called the, a psychological turn, like a revolution. He turned 
those who wanted to follow his teaching, he turned the worldview, the view of practice actually, the practice view and the path view, from one in which the, the general practice of the people at the times was one that believed that if you practice certain acts, if you do your duty in a certain way, so the Brahmins would be, some of them would have the duty to put wood on the holy fire every day. It's a pretty beautiful practice actually, to put wood on the holy fire every day. And part of the view of that one was that this is my duty and my offering of the wood to the fire is part of what keeps the cosmos turning. Right? So as moderns, we might think, well, I don't know what you think, we might think it's very quaint and old-fashioned or we might think, oh, that would be nice, you'd feel a lot of meaningfulness and you'd know your place and you'd have, wow, can you imagine the meaningfulness of that function? What a great job, really. You know, what a beautiful thing to know that your placing of offering like that is what keeps the world turning. But whatever you think about the view, he at the time pointed to that view of, of which that is one example, the fire piece, and said, look, you're doing this thing and it just keeps you going around in circles. And in the world view of the time, that was being reborn again and again and again. You're just doing the same thing. You're not understanding how the process of the world comes about. And the psychological turn is where he showed with precision and contemplative brilliance, actually, your way of attending, your mind is implicated not only in the shaping of the world, but your mind and the world you see, as Yehel pointed out last night, your mind and the world you see co-arise. Right. So radical shift, a radical turn, a psychological turn. I imagine that in that turn and in that shift, it did not mean that the Buddha suddenly started to occupy a modern perspective on the world and the cosmos. He didn't suddenly find himself in 21st century Europe thinking, ah, okay, now I see how it really is. The earth isn't flat, the um, sun is at the center of the solar system, the cosmos is actually really impersonal, doesn't really care about us at all he would not have suddenly found himself in that worldview. That worldview is one that we have inherited very recently. He probably didn't think about that. It would st he would still be embedded in a meaningful cosmos that was rich in dimensions. Perhaps for us, the psychological turn is familiar in a certain way. We've had many years, whether individually or collectively, the view has turned such that as modern people, the world view is generally, even if intellectually we may like it or hate it, the view is generally that, yeah, I am the, I'm the, the maker of meaning now. 
There's no inherent meaning out there. We know that now. I have to make the meaning. There's not really a sacred cosmos out there. That was a lovely, quaint view that people used to have in our modern superiority, we might think. Uh, we kind of know how it is now. Sadly, it's just atoms whizzing around, banging into each other. The universe is a mechanistic thing that's gotten turned somewhere a long, long time ago by this extraordinary creation myth called the Big Bang. The Buddha would still be embedded in a cosmos resplendent in dimensions and meaningfulness. The suffering of our era, we see, I see in the newspaper, reported more and more in more and more younger people crises of meaning and crises of meaninglessness, crises of isolation, crises of um, loneliness, not just young people, old people, lots of people. How might we usefully look at the Buddha's radical turn in ways that might speak to some of the crises of our times, the inner crises of our times, and then we can get to the outer crises of our times. How much of that meaninglessness and isolation and loneliness and a crisis around belonging also, how much of that isn't just personal, isn't just only Yes, includes my history, absolutely. But that might be a limit of the psychological view. That it's all about me and my. Yes, this is formative and important and needs care, absolutely, and is part of the story. But how much of these crises might be a stuckness, a limitation, in the view that what began, that began, you know, the beginning of the scientific revolution, probably some of you know this, these guys were on fire with devotion. Kepler, the astronomer guy, he was, the intuition went way ahead of the science. It's like, whoa. It's like on fire, as my mum would say, with the Holy Spirit, right? It's kind of like this, this something pulling there that's more than the rational empirical, that's got his imagination, his zeal, his heart, his senses, his intuition, his nose. There's more here. I want to know that desire to know the beyonds. And then the science can, could come and support that, but the intuition imagination was forging ahead. So, I <clears throat> just want to say a little bit, a couple of ideas about the modern worldview. And again, this is not an anti-modern worldview talk. It's the loosening, the attachment to this. It's a view. And the thing about a view is that it's not just beliefs. A view is something that um, 
Actually, I'll read this lovely quote from someone. Hopefully I'll remember to tell you who it is, but I haven't written it here. <coughs> um, listen to this and see how you might recognize this from our practice here. A view, and he's calling a worldview, but a, a view, reaches in and forges our inner being and out to constitute the world. It mirrors, it reinforces, and it forges. It, a view has a capacity to forge the very way we see, right? You think of before Copernicus, before when we thought there was a flat earth. It wasn't just the belief. We could see it. It wasn't just something, you know, like some little thought on the top. People saw a flat earth. Their whole body, their whole senses, everything was configured like a lens to see that. And you know what it's like in practice. We might have a view about ourself. And it doesn't feel like it's just a belief you could just say yes or no to. It's, it's a, sometimes a view. The view that many of us ha have inherited, which may also not just be personal, may also be cultural. The view that there's something wrong with me, let's say. That view magically shapes the whole lens. This is like an instrument. It's a whole lens. It's a whole way of seeing. And then that's what we see. We see that there is something wrong with me. It kind of reflects, it mirrors, it forges, it mutually reinforces itself until we see it's a view. Until we see a view is a view, it's a story. And some views are helpful and some views are not. And some views will yield certain results, but they will never tell you everything about the nature of the mystery of things. That when our heart is allowed to burn, we want to know. We want to know. He says, a worldview configures our psychic structures and our somatic experience, so our body is conditioned by our view. And our view is conditioned by our very body. If, so let me make this practical, if we're seeing the world, like we practiced on the first night, from the head center, from the ocular center, and the idea that really the proper way of knowing things is this sort of objective looking at things, right, which has many benefits and many, many costs. But if that's our idea, and this is the place we're viewing from, we will see a world that looks like an object. We will see a flat cosmos, we will see a lack of dimensionality, because we now are configured as the one who can see, right? we moderns who know really how it is. We don't see it's a story. We don't see that those who began that incredible search that turned things round in really important ways, that they did not see what they were seeing as absolute truths and dogmas. They used the scientific method to see what they could see. They did not say, this now is the truth, the dogma, the one true way, the one way of seeing. 
when an era is in the grip of a view, when a culture is in the grip of any view, we don't see it, we think it's the truth. As that scientific revolution turned around the grip of the previous dogmas that were limiting, in this case, medieval Europe, binding people, keeping certain oppressions in place. Might the Buddha see, might he come and say, Beloved brothers and sisters and siblings in birth, aging, sickness and death, are any of you attached to a view? The Buddha talked about four great attachments and one of them is attachment to view. There's always a view. The idea that we can see without a lens is <laughs> a story that actually philosophy and science have moved past now, but we haven't necessarily caught up with our attention. So what constitutes the modern worldview? So some ideas, and again, this is about loosening attachment, not about dismissing, not about saying there's nothing good there. Loosening attachment is the way to unbinding. So a couple of things. Um, in the modern world view, actually before I, before I name that, there's a lovely piece from David Suzuki. Um, he's talking about creation stories <coughs> from different cultures and we have our cre creation story. Um, we may have many between us here in this room, but the standard one of the, the, the Big Bang one. Um, he talks about creation stories as lenses, and that in the Mayan culture, um, stories were called ilbal, creation stories that allowed us to deepen a relationship with what is sacred. They were called ilbal, and they were seen, these stories were seen as precious seeing instruments. That a story is a precious seeing instrument. There'll always be a story. Which stories allow your devotion and desire to go in the direction that you wish? The cosmos is, I've said a little bit already, the cosmos is impersonal. And just feel the effect and see if you uh, see it that way. See if you, and I don't just mean intellectually, but moment to moment with your attention. And I'm not positing its opposite. We're loosening where it's a given, right? The cosmos is impersonal and unconscious. It is mere matter in motion, mechanis mechanistic and purposeless, impersonal, and it's ruled by chance. The universe is indifferent to human consciousness and values. The outer lacks intelligence, conscious intelligence. It lacks interiority, like it doesn't have its own subjectivity. 
and it doesn't have any intrinsic meaning or purpose. Any meaning or purpose I, I attribute to it. I am the one. This the human has become this one who can attribute meaning to things. That's very modern, very modern. <coughs> the human in this, the human gives all meaning to things. Even if we perceive beauty and value, the cosmos really still is me mechanistic. Um, and my world is taking place against a backdrop. It's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to buy it here, isn't it? It's so beautiful. But my, my drama is taking place against this backdrop that's kind of like just a stage for my sort of in, interesting or difficult life to happen in. To see the cosmos as being intelligent is naive, uh, intellectually undeveloped, childish, undifferentiated, wishfully self-indulgent, to be outgrown. There's a few ideas. Max Weber said that the modern world is a disenchanted world a disenchanted, voided of any order or meaning. One way that modern project can be uh, described is that the human has one, W-O-N, greater and greater autonomy, distinguishing ourself from what is around us. And that this achievement of autonomy, being the masters of ourself, supposedly, except we come here and realize we're not. Um, this achievement of autonomy is paid for by the human experience of alienation, a self-produced bubble of cosmic isolation. So before any more bad news, how are you doing for the bad news? The sense of your body, these views, this is an instrument what your body, your heart, your imagination, your instinct, your intellect, your sensitivity, your desire, this is an instrument. There will always be a view. There can be multiple views. The view shapes, configures, limits, and supports certain kinds of experience the view, there will always be a view, and it will act necessarily to shape, guide, constrain, and support certain kinds of experience and not other kinds of experience. Last piece before the uh, practice part. I like this. It's from, I think you say it, Feyerbont. He says, a change in universal principles, so in an era where something starts to be seen differently, a change in universal principles brings about a change in an, of an entire world. We no longer assume an objective world, right? This is, we're moving beyond the old modern story. We conclude then that our activities of seeing the world 
may have a decisive influence even upon the most solid piece of cosmological furniture. You get that? Our way of looking, the way we come into attention and perception, may have a decisive influence upon the most solid piece of cosmological furniture that makes gods disappear and replaces them by heaps of atoms in empty space. It's the shift in that worldview. Gods disappear. We don't, most people probably don't believe those anymore. But we do believe in heaps of atoms in empty space. Time for practice. Right, you don't have to sit still for this. You don't have to sit up straight, just right where you are. So just sense your heart, sense your belly, sense your body. That maybe our, some of our depression, if we have that tendency, is, a, is an inevitable result of feeling that we live in a meaningless cosmos. Whatever meaning I can get together, with love and family and service and devotion, even in the best possible way. Still, I just kind of made that up, put it together. It's a kind of lonely place to be an incredibly sensitive, intelligent, uh, imaginative creature in a cosmos that apparently isn't. Breathe with your body. This is a precious seeing instrument. You will always be seeing, sensing, hearing, knowing. Your senses will be configured by the creation stories, by the worldviews. And if we don't see any attachment to worldviews, we just think we're seeing clearly. I'm just seeing things really clearly right now. Maybe we could look again. A little bit more humility. We will never wrap our mind around this. And yet we can come to participate in this. in ways that do justice to the depth of your holy hunger, that do justice to this precious seeing instrument that you are. Do you have a desire for more? for more contact with, more touching of, more knowledge of, more intimacy with, the beyonds that cannot be finally delineated. Do you have a spark, a flame, that calls you beyond the familiar sense of self? Of course you do, you wouldn't be here. 
but what ways might be, we be limiting the depth of devotion or faith or reverence or appropriate humility or trust. Does your spiritual instinct, your nose, for something more? Does it smell the fragrance? of what is holy. And I, as I use these words, hold them lightly. Do justice to your own seeing instrument by not finally delineating any one of those words, holy, reverent, sacred. Does your spiritual instinct, your instinct for more beyonds, that cannot be completely named in time of past, present or future, does your spiritual instinct ever hear in the silence the whisper calling you out to more. What is it your heart desires? What can your precious seeing instrument see and know? If we soften its flesh, if we drop the privileging of the head center, include it, love it, its gift, its brilliance, but soften right into our flesh. What might you be called to participate in and to know? If there's ever loneliness, a confusion about belonging, a sense of limited meaning,
could you reach into the intimacy of your heart where the tender membrane of the human heart meets what is more than me and trembles there and sometimes pulls back from there and sometimes longs for that but doesn't always trust that. In the silence and the quiet here, could we linger if there is that desire to know the end of loneliness, to know the end of isolation, however small or large you experience that, to know the end of a confused desire and to know an embeddedness, feet deeply rooted at home, and to know an intimacy with yourself and what is more than you that leads onward. That has multiple meaningfulnesses that is rich, that inspires your devotion to what is beautiful, what is sacred. Let's practice tonight seeing what it's like to treat yourself as a precious seeing instrument. Wandering around the garden, not just your seeing eyes, but the whole, the whole instrument. Let it wander around the garden and love what it loves hearing the whisper and the call to more. So let's sit for a, for a minute together and enjoy this gorgeous, gorgeous summer evening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.